hi and uh, welcome to this week's special edition of the hindus podcast the parley this time we are discussing 5 years of demonetization uh, one of the boldest uh, reform measures uh, as the government called it uh, that it took, took place in november 2016 and entailed the scrapping of high value currency notes of uh, 500 rupees and 1000 rupees the government had a lot of stated aims for these uh, for the measure which came uh, with at 4 hours notice uh, became effective uh, on the night of 8 november 2016 and well some of the measures of course that they hope to achieve with this was to curb corruption and the provision of black money in india's economy as well as uh, the growing incidences of fake currency and uh, a lot of it which which was being used in terror funding to discuss uh, you know what's been the state of play of this reform in the last 5 years and how the indian economy has coped with the aftermath of it and whether the intended outcomes have been Uh, achieved so far uh, we have with us dr pranab sen uh, who's the country director for the international growth center in india since 2014 and he was also india's chief statistician before moving on to head the national statistics commission which is india's apex uh, statistical uh, monitoring body uh, he was uh, heading the commission from 2013 to 16 and an economics doctorate from the john hopkins university dr sen specializes in open economy macroeconomic systems international economics and public finance he had played a uh, very very critical roles in the formulation as well as evaluation of the progress uh, under the 8th 9th and 10th five year plans that india used to follow uh, during the times of the erstwhile planning commission with his profound grip on the trajectory of india's political economy in recent times and his deep and impartial understanding of the implications of the deployment of policy levers levers on dif- on people's lives at large we believe uh, he's best placed to give our listeners and readers a clear overview of how things have shaped up in the last 5 years and where india's economy stands today uh, thank you so much dr sen for agreeing to be part of our podcast and I welcome you to the show. Thank you, Vikas. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. And uh, hopefully, our discussions will prove, if not illuminating, at least entertaining. <laughs> Thank you, sir. On that note, uh, before we, you know, start about the aftermath, I wanted to first get a sense of, uh, you know, what you thought the state of play was before 2016 when uh, this announcement happened. Uh, was there some kind of a reliable assessment of the extent of black money in the Indian economy? I do remember the finance ministry had asked, I think, the National Institute of Finance and Public Policy to come up with some reports on, you know. trying to value the uh, black money phenomenon in the country so could you give us a sense of where things stood before we uh, hit 8 november 2016 okay uh, because i think we first need to be very clear about the distinction between black money and the black economy they are not one and the same hmm? black money is transitory uh it there's not a whole lot of it 
the black economy, particularly black assets, are large. So if you look at all the studies that have been done about the black economy in India, and there have been various attempts, uh, they've uh, spanned a very wide range of estimates. Uh, there are, it, it ranges from about 20% to about 60% of GDP. Okay. Um, but let me be very clear on this, which is black money in the sense of cash, which has uh, not been shown, is a very, very, very small component of the larger black economy. Because nobody who has made black incomes uh, hangs on to cash for very long. I mean, that is, that is just for the period before they can actually invest it in some asset, uh, which can then be done Benami, you know, there are all sorts of ways of hiding black assets. So most of the black economy really is in the form of assets and not black money itself. And in terms of assets, uh, again, like you said, the estimates varied widely. So there's no clear fix. Or... That's right. Uh, the, the range is very wide simply because there is no real information. Because, you know, after all, when you look at any asset, there is always some person, some uh, entity who holds that asset. At least the name is there. Now, whether that name is, is Benami or not is impossible for a researcher to find out. It's impossible for the statistical system to capture. So, uh, at the outset, uh, what was your first reaction? I know you were one of the first to call out some of the problems that demonetization posed. But when you heard the Prime Minister announcing the decision to scrap what at that time constituted about 86% of the currency in circulation in the country, uh, what was your instant reaction at that time? And <laughs> To put it very, very succinctly, because horror. Okay? And the reason for that is that the if you think about an economic system, any economy in the world, it depends upon transactions. I produce, I sell to you. It's the transaction which creates value. Now, in a country where cash is the most common means of transaction, uh, this was completely horrifying. Because what it said in effect is that till we bring that cash back into circulation, transactions are going to be severely hit. Now, this is bad news to begin with. The news becomes much worse when you think about who it is who are transacting in, in cash. The large corporates have a very small proportion of their transactions in cash. It's usually bank transfers or other uh, non-cash means. It is essentially the unorganized sector and the MSME sector. And it was very clear right from the announcement onwards that these would be the areas which would be very, very severely hit by this, this particular decision. And this is where the bulk of our people, um, at that particular point in time, we are talking about 90, 92, 93% of our population depended upon for their livelihoods. 
So we were talking about a very broad brush damage to the Indian economy. And as it played out, I mean, with more and more uh, rules changed every few, every few days, uh, and eventually the RBI finding that 99-odd percent of the cash came back into the system, uh, how did you feel that the implementation part was handled? And uh, of course, we'll come to the quality of outcomes going forward, but implementation itself seemed a bit haphazard, or would you say it could have been done better, if at all? Uh, Vikas, let's be very clear on this. Okay? If I was shocked by that announcement that the Prime Minister made in the night of uh, November the 6th, the RBI was even more horrified than I was. Because at the end of the day, it would be the RBI's job to contain the damage. And the RBI didn't, from what I can gather, didn't have a clue that this was about to happen. They were not prepared. They didn't have the systems in place. The net result, of course, was the, the remonetization process, which is replacing the, the cash, <clears throat> took an inordinately long time. Normally, this should have been over within a month. It played out for almost a year. And in the process, it kept affecting the ability to uh, do transactions and... Yes. So as things stand today, we've, you know, we almost have the cash in circulation is even higher than it stood that time. So your less cash economy target is in a way uh, lost. Uh, and instead of rupees 1000 notes, we now have rupees 2000, rupees 500 notes, accounting for virtually the same amount of currency in circulation, nearly 86%. So would you say we have come full circle on that front, in, at least on this particular less cash economy aspect? Well, in a sense, Vikas, let me say thank God for that. Because if it had not happened, then as an economy, we would be in, in deep trouble. Because the fact of the matter is that the... And, you know, by the way, I don't, you know, there, there is a sequence in which the various targets were announced and the less cash economy was the last in that sequence. Okay. Now, so it, it was it's a complete afterthought. So less cash has clearly not happened because today, I think if my memory serves me right, we have about 28.5 trillion rupees in cash floating around compared to about 18 at that time. So we are certainly not less cash. Uh, Non-cash transactions have certainly gone up, no doubt about it. The real question there is whether that was an organic process or whether that was actually accelerated by the demonetization. Uh, and it appears from the data that I have seen that there was an initial sharp acceleration, which then gradually tapered off over time and then started picking up again. So the transition to a less cash economy had already begun before that. And it has again gone back to trend. It's not that we are at a new level uh, from which we have not come down. 
and to some extent maybe the covid pandemic has again accelerated some digital cash usage well the co- uh, yes i mean the two are uh, of a type and that's something we can talk about as we go forward uh, but a full uh, appraisal of the demonetization episode gets complicated by the the covid uh, incident one of the other aspects is that uh, you know the the rupees 2000 note is now no longer being printed uh, but uh, you know the central banks uh, india's central banks not traditional preference was for currency denominations following the renard series principle that the denomination should be twice or two and a half times the preceding denomination so that transactions can be carried out with ease but the government never really introduced a new 1000 rupee note and uh, though it did introduce a 200 rupee note uh, do you feel that cash transactions still remain a challenge at the ground level you know it's not easy to find change for 2000 or uh, get simple transactions done because of this particular problem you know now this is the thing which is that other than the sheer physical inconvenience of carrying a stack of notes uh, there is nothing which inherently demands that the cash be in high denomination notes nothing really uh, high denomination notes being phased out i have no particular problems with provided that there is a sufficient supply of low denomination notes to substitute it the problem is if you look at the numbers again today we have a situation where the 2500 rupee notes are again dominant the lower value notes of 200 150 and, and so on downwards uh, continue to be about 15% of the total total cash um frankly i see nothing intrinsically wrong with that uh, but the real question is that if you are bent on making it more difficult for people doing high value transactions with cash then moving to lower denomination currency makes a lot of sense so i would uh, imagine that uh, the non printing of new 2000 rupee notes is a good idea but whether those should should, should be re- replaced by 500 or should we re- invent the 1000 rupee note again is really the question so do you believe uh, like some have suggested that it may not be a bad idea to scrap the 2000 note over time uh, altogether we've stopped printing altogether but you might also probably have a cut off date for them to hold validity you know again i think that that would again cause a little bit of a, a problem unless it can be done and it can be done very easily by the way because um but the rpi will have to be given a heads up on that if you are not to go through the same mess again so on the whole even as the economy was recovering from you know the initial aftermath and the lingering aftermath of the demonetization move we saw the introduction of the goods and services tax about 8 9 months later how was that played out in your view and 
taken together has the push for formalization and you know raising the higher tax uh, raising our uh, tax to gdp ratio higher has it borne any fruit in uh, in given the sequence of reforms that these two entailed vikas i'm glad you asked the question because it's not a question of whether the gst should have come it's a question of sequencing had the gst come let's say 6 months before the demonetization i think things would have been a lot better a lot lot better because one of the great advantages of gst was it encouraged not forced encouraged uh formalization so if that had preceded the effect of demonetization would have been less draconian the fact that it came later really added on to a problem that demonetization had already caused and that problem was that the parts of the economy which were dependent upon cash transactions were already in deep doldrums the gst brought the rest of the msme sector who are less less cash dependent into trouble as well so it compounded the problem right so the it's really the sequencing which is important i mean gst by itself should have come but it should have preceded demonetization and not succeeded it so in that sense uh, that explains that uh, you know the tax to gdp ratio has not really seen a dramatic improvement despite gst and despite demonetization because you that think- is correct that is absolutely correct uh the but you know the tax system as if you measure it in terms of gdp will tend to start looking better and and that is a result not just of demonetization but what has happened with the covid uh, measures as well but all together all of that was going to work but the effect if you're looking purely at the effects of demonetization you know frankly we need to stop because from march of uh, 2020 the effects of the pandemic really start dominating so in a way you know there is this for instance there is sbi research recently which argues that the informal sector has shrunk to 15 to 20% of formal gdp from about 52% in 2017-18 and of course they've attributed this to a variety of factors including demonetization gst and you know formalization of the workforce through epfo and so on uh, but again they're talking about a reference year of 2021 when the informal sector was taking a what i would call uh, given the context of our conversation a third big shock in four years uh covid lockdowns and uh, so on uh so would you say therefore it may be like you said imprudent to look at the 2021 numbers of informal activity because that actually shows you the extent of uh, trouble there no it is not imprudent because on the contrary you know i have issues with the sbi report but without going into that the simple fact of the matter is that the state of the informal sector of in india is of critical importance 
because that is the sector which generates livelihoods for the vast majority of our people. Okay. Now, if there has been a shift in the segments of the economy which used to be dominated by the informal sector and has shifted to the formal sector, then the question that arises is who is going to provide the employment? It sets the informal sector back considerably. So as far as livelihoods are concerned, you and I, we may not be affected because we're a part of the formal sector to begin with. But people who are not, for them, the future looks very bleak. And this is going to be uh, an effect that will persist for a while because the question that, that then rises is whether or not the informal sector will be able to bounce back. And more importantly, not just bouncing back, it is making inroads into the market share that the formal sector has already captured. Not because they are any more efficient or anything, but because of policy decisions which has changed the goalposts in favor of the formal sector. So this is a phenomenon of the big getting bigger uh, with each subsequent shock. Yes, yes. Each of the shocks has had that effect. But given that, I mean, like you said, livelihoods in the informal sector are critical and you know, no matter how much uh, formalization and large corporates uh, dominating individual sectors uh, persists, given that in, you know, India's inherent strength is that it has a large market and large captive domestic market. If the domestic captive market, uh, large chunks of it are not going to see growth or income uh, incomes at all uh, that are rising. So where is that inherent strength uh, left? Because, you know, if there is no demand push, there's only so much large corporates can do within India, even you know, if the Consumption push is not there from the middle classes and the bottom of the pyramid, as we, as C.K. Prahlad used to say. So, uh, what's your sense on this? How this is playing out? No, you're you're absolutely right, because you know, at the end of the day, as I said, the vast majority of the huge Indian market is at the bottom of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is very thin, uh, unless the incomes at the bottom of the pyramid rise consistently, the market will stagnate. And what will happen, and this we saw post-demonetization, what will end up happening is that the uh, corporates will make uh, a killing in the initial stages, but then the lack of growth of demand is going to start biting. So if you think about demonetization, 1718 saw handsome growth. 1819 and 1920, the growth just dropped like a brick. This was, of course, before the pandemic hit, so we were already hitting... Uh... See, I'm, I'm sticking to the pre-pandemic period. Right, right. Post-pandemic is, is another story altogether. Right. No, pre-pandemic, like you said, the economy was already seeing successive quarters of uh, declining growth. and That's right. So this is, again, a similar factor at work i mean now it may be because of covid not demonetization but uh, even now we are seeing a lot of the businesses 
larger businesses capturing more market share and informal com- businesses still struggling uh, yes so this because is, uh, this is this is true but you know the thing is that the pandemic effect is an add on to what was there before it the informal sector had not recovered that's very clear what the pandemic did was it added to that problem so if you think of the the sort of the chain of causation in the post demonetization pre pandemic period which is those three year period the negative effects on the informal sector was the lack of currency of cash in order to transact business right post pandemic the cause was different the cause was essentially that because of the lockdown all businesses formal or informal were shut now since the informal doesn't have very much reserves to be able to last out two months of uh, of lockdown a lot of them tended to close down the formals particularly the large formals who do build up reserves for contingencies they not only survived they thrived post the lifting of the lockdown so the sharp bounce back that we are seeing in the economy is entirely driven by corporates the informal sector has had three sequential shocks and uh, they are in dire shape which is what the sbi report is suggesting so given that they have very limited wherewithal to sort of survive each shock uh, this time around it may be even tougher for them to bounce back well it is it would be tougher because because if you recall after or during and after the first lockdown the government did take a series of steps well government in this case in particular rbi uh, did take a, a series of steps to try and mitigate the damage so the moratorium on loan repayment additional working capital lines for uh, sme uh, msme sectors all of these were an effort to try and mitigate the damage as far as the second wave of pandemic is concerned which happened in march april of this year uh, there were no such measures so those who had been spared by the first uh, pandemic lockdown became vulnerable in the second and this time there was no cover as such to fall back on this time there was no cover of any variety so if you look at overall then who gained i mean from these i mean even if wrongly sequenced uh, set of reforms and this uh, of course natural calamity which is what the pandemic really is uh, overall who you think seems to have gained from these set of developments over the past few years or the unquestionably corporate india unquestionably corporate india has grabbed market share which they wouldn't even have dreamed of before demonetization happened 
And now they have to pay lower tax rates. And now they have to pay lower tax rates. But like we said, you know, they're not going to see a sustainable uh, investment uh, opportunity if there is not going to be sustainable demand. And this is a sort of virtuous cycle that will take a while to uh, reappear from what I understand. Uh, would you agree? This, this is the problem. You know, I think we have gotten ourselves stuck in a sort of a low-level equilibrium trap, which is that the informal sector will find it very difficult to bounce back until and unless there is sufficient push, both from the financial sector, which I don't see happening, uh, simply because the banking sector in particular uh, has become extremely risk-averse for very understandable reasons, and that the NBFC sector is in doldrums anyway. Um, This is going to persist. Which means that the dynamism of the Indian economy, which is the bottom of the pyramid moving from poverty-stricken to merely poor to lower middle class, that process has stopped. So what about the other uh, larger goals that the government had talked about? Do you think, for instance, terror fund financing, counterfeit currency, do you think we managed to hit any of those targets in any sense? Well, as far as counterfeit is concerned, I mean, the only data and study that we have is is a Reserve Bank of India study, which suggested that the total, and this was borne out later as well, that the total amount of fake currency was 3,500 crores, which is a kind of a laughable amount. So if if that was the target, then you used an you know an atomic missile to kill a mosquito. Um, but on the other hand, uh, so far as terror finance is concerned, now here, here's the question: terror financing is really about whether or not the people who are into terror whether they hang on to the cash that is paid to them. I suspect not. The fact that almost the entire amount of currency that was demonetized came back, I think is an attestation of that. That if the terror people had currency that they couldn't transact, they managed to exchange it. And so if you think of it that way, the problem really lay in being able to determine whether or not a current uh, currency that has been offered to a bank should be exchanged for new notes or not. And one of the other hopes was that, you know, all these people making uh, declarations of income and depositing cash would therefore invite uh, income tax authorities to look at past incomes. And, you know, uh, we didn't see any dramatic numbers on the income tax enforcement. Of course, there are these limitation laws that, you know, there are after you initiate uh, proceeding you can only uh, you have to close it within two years and maybe we didn't have the manpower to process such a large number of large cash deposits but we didn't see any headline uh, numbers saying you know suddenly you de- after demonetization 5000 high paying tax evaders uh, delivered this much of income tax or so on so is that something also that was a bit of a disappointment would you say uh, 
It is, and I don't know where to put the blame on that. I mean, is it that the income tax department simply didn't take the opportunity? So far as I am aware, the banks have were meticulously keeping records on this. But then some, somebody would have to aggregate those records, identify the people, and then proceed. So I don't know where the, the blame lies. But that, if anything, that would have been the one big gain. But as you rightly said, it shows up nowhere in the income tax uh, data. So that leaves us with the other thing that, you know, this will um, curb corruption, the incidence of petty corruption, incidence of high-end corruption facilitated by easy high-value currency notes. Do you feel that there's any anecdotal or other evidence that corruption in the country has gone down? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of anecdotal information, uh, which is that petty corruption uh, certainly has not gone down. There, There is anecdotal evidence that petty corruption has act- actually, in fact, gone up because the risk associated have, have risen. Uh, so the risk ad- adjusted return to the uh, bribe taker uh, has gone down, so he's he's raised his price. Uh, that that seems to be clear. The real question is not petty corruption; it's large corruption. The question there, of course, is was large scale corruption um, transacted through cash? And the answer is probably no. Those were probably done through transfers, not in India but abroad. Um, moreover, we have this. Now, this new phenomenon called cryptocurrencies. And given the nature of cryptocurrencies and given the information base surrounding them, a huge amount of corruption can take place via cryptos. And we wouldn't even know about it. And to add to that mix, we have this sophistication uh, called electoral bonds where everyone is anonymous. And uh, in a way, it's sort of makes it extremely difficult to figure out what's driving decisions. Well, it's not entirely anonymous because the fact is that the electoral bond, who has actually bought them, is known to government. Who gets them is anonymous. So the anonymity is on the recipient's part, not on the part of the, the per- person per- purchasing it. But that creates its own unique... No, it creates a, a very special problem. Overall, would you say that what are the lessons that you know we learn from such policy shocks that we hopefully should not repeat in the future? And what other aspects of the demonetization exercise do you think over time we need to scrutinize more closely? You know, because if as far as what we've been discussing is concerned, I think the two points that come out very clearly is that when you take a measure of this magnitude, then somebody should be doing the homework in terms of who, which are the agencies which have a critical role to play in making that particular decision a success. And in this particular case, I think there were at least two 
which immediately jump to mind. The first, of course, is RBI. Uh, and the second is the income tax department. The fact of the matter is neither of them were aware of it and they certainly were not geared up to take advantage of the situation. So what ended up happening is that a decision was taken without the requisite follow-up. So we got all the damage and very little of the benefits. When 10 years from now, 15 years from now, when we look back at demonetization, do you think uh, we might have more evidence because, for instance, you know, we just recently heard the former State Bank of India chairman say that it might take 30 years to assess the actual benefits of demonetization. But do you believe that or do you think post-pandemic uh, uh, has changed the timeline? No, the pandemic will muddy up waters so thoroughly that I don't think that post-2020 uh, you'll be able to segregate the effects. So it's futile trying to distill what happened due to this beyond that. Uh... Yes. You know, people will make all kinds of efforts, take it from me, all kinds of econometric uh, tricks will be used to try and tease out the effects. But I suspect that it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult to, to segregate them. One last thing I want to do, uh, bounce off you, is that how critical would, say, consumption expenditure data that the statistical machinery collects? Could that give us some insights uh, as we go forward? It could, it could, but we've already missed the boat. The 2017-18 Household Consumption Expenditure Survey would have given us some insight, except that that particular data has been suppressed. So any subsequent data that comes will not have that series to compare to? Any subsequent data, you will not be able to tease out the difference be between the demonetization effect and the, uh, the pandemic effect. So having seen all this happen, what do you advise? Uh, I mean, apart from what you said that, yeah, the, the agency's concerns should be prepared better when uh, implementing such a large-scale uh, reform. But given that there are still quite a few reforms maybe not as big ticket, uh, at least what the government calls big ticket reforms uh, that are still in play. Given that, what do you think? Uh, should should there be, uh, should the governments be more wary of introducing such abrupt shocks? I mean, it's better, for instance, to give greater time periods for people to adjust and, uh, you know, not treat every citizen like a, a suspected criminal. Uh, do you think in that sense, uh, Governments will be will be more wary because we don't see the government, for instance, on 8th November this year, we didn't see any celebrations, we didn't see any mention of demonetization. Do you think over time uh, the government has learned the lesson that they will refrain from such, such dramatic shocks? Well, I don't know what lesson they have learned. I mean, perhaps the, the lesson they've learned is let's not play up the demonetization episode any further. Uh, enough of that. Uh, but the long and short of it, you know, is that if I might just draw an analogy, there used to be a time when the Reserve Bank of India, in deciding the interest rate policy, loved to do it as a shock, a sudden abrupt change in direction. Over time, 
amendments have been made in the RBI Act that before you do any such thing, you have to give the people a warning. So the, the RBI today routinely has to first say whether they are going to be accommodative, neutral, or they're going to be hawkish about it. I think that rule is applicable not just to the RBI. It should be applicable to government as a whole. That before you take or implement actually a policy decision, you should give people a heads up so that they can make whatever adjustments are necessary to be able to either take advantage or prevent the worst effects of that decision. Uh, one hopes that somebody in the policymaking machinery is listening in as well. And I really appreciate your time, Dr. Sen. Uh, and thanks so much for these insights because uh, it's rare to be able to uh, uh, distill the wheat from the chaff when it comes to discussions on demonetization, given that it's such a you know trigger-happy uh, discussion point among people uh, with very, very... Uh, extreme points of view on its efficacy and in a way i feel that uh, you have managed to sort of bring this into perspective and i'm sure our readers and listeners who are introspective introspecting on how their lives have changed in the last five years will find your words uh, helpful in terms of understanding what happened and what uh, this means going forward uh, given the fresh pandemic shocks that have come to the economy um, thanks so much again, Dr. Sen, and we hope to have you here more often on our podcast and sharing your views with us and our listeners and readers. Thank you, Vikas. It was a pleasure. 